I, um, I used to have a pretty adventurous life traveling all over the world doing what I would say are fun and exciting things. And uh, eventually that culminated in being a war correspondent for NBC News. And so I was over in Iraq, Afghanistan and all that. And then I met a widow with three babies and decided to quit doing that and join the circus, as I called it. And one day my new wife said to me, now that you're not traveling around so much, why don't you build those old airplanes you're already, you know, always talking about? Because I am a pilot as well. So I did. And I, my first plane was a World War I fighter. It took a long time to build. I was very meticulous, but it was great. It was a lot of fun. And it, it flew like I expected. And then I sold that and built another plane that was um, more like a, a something you'd see in a Disney cartoon. <laughs> it was very small and whimsical, kind of like a soapbox derby car with a couple of wings and a big engine right in front of my face. And it was on that second test flight that I lost my engine and I couldn't make it back to the airfield. So I aimed for a small lake at a Boy Scout camp that was closed for the year. It was in October, almost exactly five years ago, and overshot the bank of the lake and went right into all the big tree trunks, again, in the equivalent of a soapbox derby car, but at about 70 miles an hour. And I uh, broke all my ribs, ruptured both lungs. My right leg had multiple fractures. I had a hole in my lo lower back from the battery breaking loose and hitting me. Luckily, there was a retired police officer there fishing because the park was closed and it was very mellow except for when planes are crashing. So he was able to run over and um, sort of keep me propped up while he called 911. And the reason it was important to keep me propped up is because my lungs weren't working and sort of folded over. I just was not going to be able to even gasp for air. But the medical helicopter landed not too long after and flew me up to Hartford, Connecticut's trauma center where um, a waiting team of surgeons took me right in so that when my family arrived there, maybe two or three hours later, uh, they, they found me in a breathing machine, was intubated with a tube down my throat, had all kinds of other tubing coming in and going out of me. And uh, I'd already escaped from the restraints once, so they put me back in bigger restraints. And their recommendation was that they put me into a coma for a week. So my family agreed that was probably best. I mean, you know, why did I need to be awake during all of this? There were going to be multiple six plus hour operations coming up, some with only a 2% chance of success. And they said they could lose me at any time. So they thought, let's just put him under. And again, the way I would tell it is that once they put me into a coma here, that's when my near death experience started. Is that true? How could I really say? But since I have no memory of it, when I was conscious, um, that, that's a good place to park it. And that's where, as you were saying, Peggy, that I would draw a big distinction between my near-death experience and many of the others I've heard. I mean, you've, you've interviewed a lot of people. You've heard a lot of near-death experiences. And it's interesting when they say, you know, there's this statistic that maybe 5% of the world has had an NDE. That's 60 million more people than live in the United States. Wow. And so, you know, an easy answer when people say, how do you know it wasn't a hallucination? I'd say it's when you take, you know, out of those 380 million people who have had a near-death experience, when we read the accounts of so many, how can a hallucination have so many of the same 
components. You know, to me, a hallucination is kind of a random thing. You know, like if 10 people take LSD, I don't think any of them are going to come back and say, oh, yeah, you know, I went through the tunnel. I saw dead loved ones. I saw had a life review. No, no, no. They're all very different. And if you take it again, that's probably going to be different again as well. So to me, that statistical significance of some of the similarities we see in, uh, across NDEs, and that can be across cultures as well, really speaks to the significance of the experience. The commonalities However, I call yeah. language of heaven, because yeah. the commonalities yeah. is what I think, how could we make up that many people? Because <laughs> there are so many commonalities of the way we were communicated with. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, my experience was a little different. I did not have the travel through the tunnel. I uh, did not see any angelic beings. I did not have a life review itself, but I would say functionally, I had something that was kind of like a life review. And then as far as being sent back with a big message, I guess I was sent back with some reminders. So what happened for me was I... Uh, it was just as if I was just teleported to where I was going. And I, um, I guess you could say I appeared on the terrace of a tall building in what I don't have a better way to describe it, a post-apocalyptic landscape. Imagine the biggest, largest city you've ever been to, whether it's New York or LA or whatever, but imagine it's thousands of years or a thousand years after um, the nuclear bomb or the meteor hits or something like that. I mean, just total destruction is a dead city, very gray. And then above it were these huge storm clouds. Over my shoulder is a depiction of where I went that I put together myself. And um, these huge storm clouds that were just about to cut loose with everything they had were overhead. And uh, while I took all this in, I was, I was very dispassionate about it. I just took it in with no judgment, no fear, no like, whoa, what's going on here? I was just, okay, I accept this. All of a sudden, this wave of nausea went through me, and I kind of doubled over with pain, and I said something like, you know, I don't think I can stand this. And when I did, I heard this sound off to my left, and I looked over, and not very far away was a large egg-shaped sculpture as if it were made out of open lattice work uh, maybe four or five stories tall and i could see little movements within it within that all that open space so i made my way over to look through the open lattice and see what's inside and there were these special kind of gears that were just sort of free floating in space and they could pass through each other some were very definite and in focus some were more ghost-like but it didn't matter they could just pass through each other and the type of gears they were, I think, were significant. When we think of a gear, we think of a circle with little teeth all the way around it. And maybe it interlocks with another one and they spin around and make our clocks work and things like that. But this was called a sector gear. And it's a section of a gear, like a pie slice. As a result, it's meant to move back and forth along that arc, meaning it has a beginning, a middle, and an end to its movement. Why that's significant? is because as I looked at each one of these gears, whether they were, I would call themselves in focus or not, a video feed, if you would, would play inside my head that associated with what they represented. And I realized I'm looking at events that are in my future. 
again, events that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I, um, the reason I know is from my future is I might see myself as an older person. I might see my children with children of their own, things like this. And with curiosity, I put my hand through the lattice work to see, gosh, can I even touch these things? And when I did, at some point, one of the gears brushed by my hand. And when it did, I was racked with pain again. And I reflexively grabbed it and pulled it out and like threw it away. And now I realized all the gears are spinning around again, essentially resetting to the loss of one. And I, at that point I asked, you know, what is this thing? And at that point, a disembodied voice came and stayed with me throughout the experience. And it said, this is the future birthing into the now. This is the process of becoming. And I said, um, what are these gears? What do they represent? I said, you know, these are all probabilities of, you know, things in your future, thoughts, words, and deeds. And I said, well, you know, how, how come some cause pain and some don't? And it said, well, these represent choices and all choices have unexpected consequences. Um, some some will be good and some will be bad. And sometimes you won't know until after you've chosen them. And I said, well, you know, at some point when I was reaching in there, you know, it's like, okay, well, what is it I am here to do? And he said, basically, you're being given the opportunity to choose in your future, to choose choices that would be to your spiritual detriment and remove them. It's like stacking the deck, essentially, right? that you know you're you're actually cleaning up your future for example i mean if you're if you're a recovering alcoholic and you don't want to drink and you're really being good about not presenting yourself with temptation if you walk to work you're probably going to change your way you go to not walk by a bar right you know you hear the glasses tinkling the whiskey pouring the laughter inside and it calls to you so how about if you're trying not to drink again you just don't go there so you might say it was a little bit like that. And while I'm doing this, you know, we're continuing to talk about things. And I, uh, I remember it. So I was being given the opportunity to remove more using only pain as my guide. I mean, I said I'm a little humiliated by this because it's not like I have a scripture or a mantra or like from using a guru or, you know, an image of a religious icon to make my choices. I'm only using pain. And that's when it said that um, that the pain of making these choices in this way here and now is far less than later forging the chains of the world around you and having to carry them as a result of making those choices. And at one point I looked around, I saw this huge pile of gears growing and I said, it looks like if I have if I don't have a bad future, I'm going to have no future at all. I said, am I going to die sooner from doing all this? And it said, your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. And it said, and for those who make poor use of their choices, offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. And I accepted that. That's humbling. And then at some point I said, um, you know, I, I think, I can, I can live with this now. And it said, 
Well, everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I am gentle with you. And I remember saying, gosh, what's gentle about all this? You know, because of the pain. And they said, your being here is an answer to a prayer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the man who flew into it. And with that, it pretty much booted me out. And I would say that when I came out, I, I would say, I'd say when I came out it was probably another week before I had a functioning memory and maybe even a functioning mind, you know, with the drugs from the coma, the physical shock, the anesthesia and all that. And that my first, I am, my first awareness at all was already in a different hospital, in a rehabilitation hospital. And as I sort of came to already, the memory of my NDE was in my head and it just was as if it were recycling over and over and over with each iteration, bringing more detail, more, for want of a better word, emotional impact. And I just said, what in the world is this thing? So, yeah, those yeah. voices that we encounter on the other side that say such profound things that we could not make up, we could not understand or you know that's what i call the language of heaven because it's clearly outside of us there's something there guiding us supporting us teaching us it's outside of us that is not us in my opinion i agree i mean some people have said you know do you think that was like a higher aspect of yourself and i'm saying does it really matter <laughs> this is the self i'm having to deal with right now the unenlightened if you will so whether it's some future version better version of me or whether it's god i don't I can really it. care less because it's what's important is just that i know that next step to take and i almost don't care who tells it to me yeah. just tell me which way to go and, and that's one thing i think is that you know with some people like we anybody who has near-death experience a lot of times in trying to share it they're going to meet some people who aren't quite certain about it you know that that well, are you sure it wasn't a hallucination thing or whatever and some people even say well you know you're not perfect I said never said i was perfect but you don't have to be perfect to have a perfecting experience right to have that wake right. up call. the only difference between the me of now and the me of yesterday the only difference is I've had my feet pointed in the right direction. And that's it. I don't have to be perfect for that to have happened. All I have to do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other and see where it takes me. And that's it. And that's all that really should be expected. I just think, you know, it's just so big, people can't put it in a box and be comfortable with it. And that's why, and some people it can be about ego you know they, they don't want uh they don't want you to be elevated above them it's like you know this isn't about that and i think i think uh, one of the truest statements i've ever heard was he who does not have a temple in his heart will never find his heart in any temple and i think that's how it has to be and so you know you you mentioned something a moment ago about that super conscious state that i, I want to touch on um because I had no memory of my crash when, you know, resting in this hospital for a few weeks, I had somebody bring me my laptop from home. And I thought, what's the last email I actually remember, either sending or receiving? It was two days before the crash. When I had that crash, it literally knocked out two days of memories <laughs> before the crash. They have never come back since. 
I found that interesting. And then I think it's interesting that upon coming out of the coma, I had almost a week of, let's call it amnesia. But isn't it interesting that within those two, we'll call them bookends of amnesia, was this incredibly lucid, super conscious experience that I can remember very well. Yes. That to me is significant. Yes, you know, it is. Yeah. It's like brain, not inside your brain, inside your soul, and then brain. Because it seems exactly. like in those memories that happened when we were outside of our brain, when we were dead, when we were on the other side, are perfect. I call it the land of all knowing. And, yeah. the, and, and you know, our brain maybe is faulty and we can forget, but when it happened through our soul, not our brain, yeah. never going to forget it. And it's so profound and it's so intelligent that we are just in awe for the rest of our life. So true. And I think, you know, like the way we communicate is so different. Like here, you know, we, like there you might receive this download, but if here you have to sort of play it out over time. I said, it's like, it's like downloading a movie on your computer. You can download a two hour movie in just two or three minutes. And it's all these jumbles of ones and zeros that don't make any sense. But we have to play it out through the time-dependent media player over two hours to understand what it is we have. But within all those ones and zeros is not only an incredible story that could change your life, but all of the, the technical information on how to make a film that could win an Oscar. I find that all that very interesting. Yeah. So, but over on the other side, we... We don't need to do all that processing. Like on the other side, if you and I were there, if I wanted to know how you felt about something, I wouldn't even have to ask you. I just look at you and I know because you glow with the awareness how you feel about it. And I look at you and I can read that awareness. It's just that way. You know, it's like I can look at a rock and know it's a rock. I could look at over there. You can look at people and souls and you can know exactly how they feel about things and so that's why the you know the communication is instantaneous um and then what's interesting is the first person i, I shared my experience with was actually a um, one of my nurses they i had a great team of nurses 24 7 every eight hours and my morning nurse named jen was really awesome and i realized one day i think she just hangs out in the room because she likes to hang out and we just talk about all kinds of things and so she was the one I said, can I just tell you this thing that's going on in my head and I can't make sense out of it? She said, sure. So I told her my near-death experience and someone here, she started crying. I said, why are you crying? She said, because I don't want you to die. And I said, well, you're a nurse in a hospital. You know, you see death all the time. She said, yeah, but you're magical. And I said, how do you mean? And she said, um, everybody here gets a doctor only a few minutes a day because doctors are busy. I said, yeah, I know that. She said, but for some reason, every day you have three to five doctors in here for up to an hour and a half. I walked by listening in on what in the world could you be talking about? You're talking about everything else but your medical case. You know, one doctor wants you to be in business with him so bad he has you on international conference calls in the middle of the night with your leg up in the air in its cage. And she said, I've never seen anything like that. So I think that's where I got my first taste of what's been said before that if you weren't psychic before an NDE, you're psychic after, or if you were psychic, you're more psychic. I'm not saying I'm psychic, but I am saying what 
attribute of myself that seemed to have its volume turned up was empathy. And it's not, I don't think, just the empathy to read people and, you know, like really understand how they're feeling. But I think to some extent, the, to be able to project feelings as well. And obviously in my, it'd be only of interest to me to project a sense of connection. Like if we're connecting to make sure they understand that they're, they should be feeling a connection to another human being. Or when, you know, like the word educate means to draw forth. The, in ancient Greece, the idea of education wasn't, I am putting knowledge in your head. The idea of education is I'm pulling out of you what is already there. That all truth and all beauty already exists within you. And my only job as your teacher is to remind you of it. Can you imagine waking up in a world like that? You where you have that inherent respect mm -hmm. for each other? Yet we can do, we can wake up in that world by how we wake up tomorrow and decide to treat others. Just because they're not ready to treat us doesn't make any difference at all. We can still talk to people in terms of their higher potential, the highest potential. And our body language, our vocabulary, our the, the inflection in our voice, they will instinctively understand that that's the version of themselves we're talking to. And that's the version we're calling out. And there are so many people who would try to live up to that sense of expectation. And you may be the first person they've ever met in their lives who talked to them like they believed in them. That could be life-changing. Yeah, so, I call that like, or you want to be in the light or you want to be in the dark. And then somebody said once, well, there's no such thing as light and dark. I said, well, that's how I explain it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because right. I can be a, a loving, giving light or I can be negative in darkness. You know, I really do have a choice. And right. we all do. Whether exactly. we're nice to the lady in the checkout line or whether we're rude. Yeah, and it's a moment-by-moment moment choice. And, and, I, and so I think a lot of times when, when we're not seeing the, what I call the very good side of people, a lot of times, you know, like whether it's just like you say, somebody in the checkout line or road rage or just who knows throughout the course of the day, a lot of times it doesn't have anything to do with us. You know, they, they may be dealing with something at home. Their world could be falling apart in one way or another. And if you think over the past year between uh, COVID and the fears around COVID where people were told to stay home, people were losing their income, people were being cooped up, domestic uh, uh, abuses going up because people are cooped up um, with the, the loss, like I said, the loss of income. And then the whole politically charged thing, you know, which party are you? I mean, friendships ended because of all this stuff last year. And then, of course, the social justice issues where people maybe sometimes weren't quite sure where to stand or how to communicate that out to their friends. Uh, there's just been so much stress that everything sort of became rage and the volume was turned up to 11 instead of 10 and there was no communication. There was only compliance. And I'm and not so sure it wasn't intentional. Well, I think now we're seeing a big reaction to that. We're seeing a big pushback to that now, you know, as, as parents speak up at school meetings and as workers would rather be fired than get vaccinated. And I'm not saying anything about which side of the fence it should be on, but I am saying 
you can only take people's power away for so long before they find a way to re-exert some control over their lives. And it may not always be pretty. And that to me is the sign of either, you could say leadership or the lack thereof. Um, the best leaders, you never even see. The leaders we love are the ones we do see. And then, you know, they're the leaders we respect and then the leaders we fear and despise. And, you know, they, they talk about that Maslow hierarchy, uh, you know, the pyramid, you know, at the bottom, you have basic survival. You know, am I going to basically live tomorrow? And then as you start to realize, okay, I've got my cave, I've got my spear, I'm going to make it till tomorrow. Then as you start to survive over the days, maybe you meet other people, you say, you know, I bet we could hunt bigger mammoths if we hunted together. Okay, now we start to build society, right? And then we start to build trust. And then we come back and we want to tell our stories to, to those who didn't come out. So now we're starting to build art and culture and on and on and on until you get to the top of the pyramid, which is self-actualization. Well, that's the move from survival to living. I think this whole, all of these circumstances this past year took us down a notch, away from living back towards survival. And it's not bringing the best out in us. You know, it's kind of like being on the Titanic and rushing for not enough lifeboats. People want that kind of stability back that they had before. They want to go to movies. They want to socialize. They want to go out to dinner. They want to go to a ball game. They want to do all these things that, you know, the government's looking hard at them and saying, yeah, I don't know if you should. So anyway, difference I look at it as a divorce. It seems like, like our country just got divorced. Like say Republican and Democrats were married, not that they ever like along that great, but now they're divorced and we're all the children of divorce and the rules have all changed. One side's demanding all this, the other side's demanding all that. And who's, you know, it's this tug of war and the citizens are the children and we're all suffering. And we're like, what about me? <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. And is what was true yesterday still true today? Or did, like you say, did everything just change? It's just like going through an earthquake so much of the time. And we don't really see any end to it inside. Every time we think we do, it's like, no, you still have to wear your mask. No, now you need another vaccine. No, you still need to be vaccinated. It's just like- Simon says. Yeah, it pretty much. So while we work our way through that, knowing that no one of us can solve this issue right now, right today, I, I, I wrote two books. One was- um, the In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime, that was about my life before my NDE, my NDE, and then starting to come to grips with it afterwards. And then a lot of people would say, well, how do we put more of what you talk about into practice? So I thought about it, and I came up with a second book that came out this year called The Practice In-Between, The Art of Letting Go. And just realizing that, you know, there's so many courses out there about, oh, take our course to have or, or, or sign up here to have that one more thing, you know, whether it's a, you know, a multi-level marketing scheme or whether it's a prosperity consciousness or something like that. And I said, you know, all of this is predicated on the fact that you don't have what it takes to be successful, that you don't have what it takes to be happy, that you need that one more thing. And there one more thing is going to answer all your questions and solve all your problems if you'll only either spend this amount of money doing it or spend this amount of time doing it, or basically, you know, recite whatever their mantra is. So I said, 
the sad thing is the only people who profit by this are the people who are selling the one more thing. You know, and we're chasing it with our last breath. I said, let's stop for a moment and think about this. What if we have everything within us to be a happy spiritual being? Like when you hold a newborn baby, you just come over from the other side. I like to think they have all the answers right there. You know, they're, they're fine. You know, society starts to mess them up. Their need for connection when puberty hits starts to confuse them a bit. And so we start to, you know, I think get out of touch with that innate wholeness. We and everybody with. wants to have a near-death experience. They want to touch heaven, hold a newborn baby. Pretty much, right? Like I said, you know, this is the person who's just come over. <laughs> so hang out with them a little bit. And, and to your point, I think sometimes when it's worth remembering that when we want to affect change in our lives, it's definitely we may have to change our relationships. And sometimes, and sometimes, you know, that, that need to change is no more different than just finding a different frequency of communication. You know, like a tuning fork that a piano tuner uses to tune the piano. If you have two tuning forks that are identical and you tap one and you can hear it ringing, all you have to do is bring it close to the other and that one just starts vibrating. This is a true statement. How much effort was required? No. How much money had to be paid? No. So I think sometimes spirituality and, and chemistry between people is no more esoteric than that. It's just really cool to see it happen. So I think that if we were to start working from the premise that we do have everything within us already we need to be, then the question is not so much where where is the next big thing or, or where is the one more thing but how would i become the next big thing and that is simply by for each one of us i think recognizing what the meaning of life is for me it's to become one with god and that's it how do i and then the purpose is how do i do that how do i express that and for me i would say back the question of the purpose of life I'm sorry, the meaning of life into what is the purpose of life. And so the question is, if my goal is to become one with God, then what unique talents or abilities or perspectives or what makes me me do I use to engage in life and engage with people in a way that will get me to that ultimate goal? And I think for all the wonderful things we do here, whether it's go to the moon or cure cancer or whatever, I don't think that's why we come here. I think we come here to have certain relationships. Because let's face it, at the end of the day, when we're on our deathbed, is it I wish I spent more time in the office or I wish I had validated my children and my wife or my husband more? Yeah, nobody ever wants to have spent more time in the office they usually are thinking about their relationships. So why waste time with your to your last breath to realize that? Why not just make an assumption that that is the most important thing and the most important reason we're here and let's do it. You know, Jesus himself said in, I think it was in Luke that, you know, regarding the kingdom of God, they will say, oh, it's over here. Oh, it's over there, but it's not. The kingdom of God is within you. That to me points to relationships. <laughs> when does. my sister was in the hospital recently 
a uh, every day a young pre-med student he's in his third year he would come in and talk to me he's going into psychiatry a gorgeous young man and we just clicked and um he told me that he's not in a relationship but when he does find a wife he wants to adopt children he doesn't want to have his biological because he feels the world isn't such that you should bring in a child and that there's enough children already that need homes and I said, okay, I get that. You know, I fostered and adopted. But I said, let me tell you something. I said, uh, just do this. I said, uh, you come across patients on their deathbed. Ask them one question. What was their favorite thing in life? And I guarantee you, the majority are going to say the birth of my children. Yeah. A few minutes later, he said, a few minutes true. later, he said, okay, I'll have one of my own biological. <laughs> and I'll uh -huh. adopt one. <laughs> It not be bad to get a stake in the sand with one, right? But yeah, it's it's usually it's an experience that makes us happy, not a thing. And the experience is usually had with another person. But you know, the sports car, that excitement lasts for about five minutes. You know, when we were kids, there was a toy we just had to have. We got the toy within three months, it's gathering dust under the bed. But everybody remembers their first trip to Disneyland or the beach or some really great birthday party or something like that you know and so i think it's important just to remember that and keep that in focus now i was saying a second ago that you know if someone's all upset don't don't take it personally because it probably had nothing to do with you i think it's really important to always be able to stand back and kind of take yourself out of the center of the equation and just recognize that you know people are Every one of us is the main character in our own play, right? And everyone else is among the supporting cast of thousands. Uh, and I think once we recognize that's the case with everybody, then it's easier to see them as being just like us rather than different from us. And I think, like we were saying, how society's changed over the past year or two, so many people are thinking in terms of or instead of and. They're thinking you or me instead of you and me. And so I mean, it's like vaccinated or unvaccinated, conservative or liberal, black or white, woman or man, rich or poor, powerful or disenfranchised. Whereas if we could just change that one word and say black and white, men and women, vaccinated and unvaccinated, just with that one change, but that one word, it may well start to change some of the conversations or some of the shouting matches we're having. It'd be worth a try because we are all in this together, whether we like it or not, whether we like each other or not. You know, we should we, we can work out these individual differences later if we could just sort of stabilize the sinking ship. When you were talking about the gears in your near death experience and you were trying to make sense of or uh, you were understanding it later, like how time slows down and, and you may not notice certain things. It made me think about falling in love. Like it does, it happens without us knowing it. There's, it doesn't slow down like, okay, I feel this because that, okay, now I feel this and okay, this is great. When there's none of that, it's like the time is irrelevant. It's like all of a sudden you wake up one day, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm in love. <laughs> Where did that come from? Exactly. You know, we didn't see it coming, but yet it's as true as anything you can't see it smell it touch it 
but it's everyone knows when they are in love and when they're not in love when or they fall out of love though you can't touch it or see it and put a timetable on it it just is well i think that's a really great point you bring up because let's face it in terms of whatever our true self is over on the other side we're a little closer to being that than we are here because we have this you know the this bag of wet clothes we put on called a body right with its limited senses its limited ability to think and see and, and feel and all that whereas when we dump this even if it's for a little while and sort of wake up in that greater sense of self that greater sense of consciousness it i'll bet there sometimes we go wow that was weird you know like shake it off right like if you were to have a bad dream or something uh because there we 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 see ourselves and we see each other i think in a more pure light and here we see life through the filters we want you know before we go to that first job or first interview we look in the mirror at home and say yeah the most competent person in the world before we go out on that big first date we look in the mirror and go yeah i'm attractive and whatever but over there we see life through the filters we need and that's why i think for all of the experience near-death experiences that have a similar the similar hallmarks of going through the tunnel and seeing dead love ones a life review and the conversations with angelic beings or whatever for the similarities that are suggested by all those common hallmarks it's still amazing how everyone says how incredibly tailor-made an individual their experience was right down to maybe their deepest darkest secrets without any judgment so i think i think that's where we say we see life through the filters we need and it speaks to again how individual these sometimes broadly brushed experiences are what do you make of that you were told in your near-death experience that you will no longer be who you were or something there was a point where um if it's if it's the part i'm remembering uh it said it said that i was standing inside the eternity i said where am i I said you're in the impossible now i said what does that mean it said it's impossibly thin meaning super right now but impossibly broad across multiverses and i said that doesn't make any sense and it said you're standing inside the the infinity of a single moment the eternity of a single moment and it said for example it said the past is dust and I said, what does that mean? It said, can you remember the world to which your body belongs? And I said, nope, <laughs> I tried. And it said, honestly, Peggy, if somebody had come up to me and said, if you stay here any longer, you can't go back. I said, go back where? To your family. What family? I was depersonalized down to zero. It's so risky to say I didn't even have an ego. But it was like that. I just I wasn't thinking of who I am. I wasn't thinking of like I said any emotion or any logic. I was just there and conscious and I guess ready to get on with the opportunity that was being given me. Um, and that's that depersonalization is something that's kind of carried over a little bit. And I'm not saying I'm sitting here kind of like a zombie with no personality, 
but I'm saying that ability to, like I said, remove myself from the picture and just say, okay, let's look at how what's going on here without my feelings being hurt or my feelings being involved or that it needs to make any sense to me whatsoever. Let's just watch the processes without judgment and see if we can better understand what's going on. And that's more of a, like a non-linear approach to problem solving than a linear approach, like step one, step two, step three. So these are, you're asking good questions. I, I'm not sure if I answered the question you were asking, but. Um, I just wondered what you thought later, like something said to you, like, you are no longer who you used to be, or you won't be the same person or something like that. So I was just curious what you felt about that later. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm misquoting you. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's elusive, but, but it, but it still rings true. And we, we are, we are changing all the time and everything we are, we are moment by moment. And when we go through that, doorway for the final time everything we think we are will be left at the door so i think i think that's the best i can do right now what you're what you're saying is making me focus on something because during my second nde all i cared about was my boys that they that i was there to protect them i that i need to go back and protect them it wasn't about my life. It wasn't the fact that we were getting ready to buy it or build a new home. We just bought property or anything about me whatsoever. It was the safety of my boys and that is it. But that was in the evening. The next morning after they found the internal bleeding, they saw mm -hmm. there really was something wrong because the night before they said, you're fine. So the next morning when they found the internal bleeding, they had me go sign the papers to sign my organs away, called my whole family and said I wasn't going to make it. So I'm sitting there at 25 years old, about 105 pounds. And I remember exactly what I was thinking. And of course, I'm no longer NDE. This is just Peggy. And I'm thinking, this isn't fair. I'm young and I'm pretty. This should happen to old people or fat people or ugly people. This should not happen to me, a pretty 25-year-old, healthy. I remember thinking that. And I'm, I think later, what a snot, like <laughs> in, my, in my soul, all I cared about was my sons. But a few hours later, when I'm fully in my brain, I'm all about me because I'm getting ready to die. And, you know, it makes you mad when you're getting ready to die. If, if you have that foreknowing, you know, a lot of us just like, oh, crap, there I am. I'm dead. I'm on the other side. Like you, you didn't have time to prepare and think, what do I think about this? I'm probably going to die. I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. How do I feel about this? <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, like, a, like you're getting ready to have a car wreck and you think, oh, crap, I'm going to be dead here in a second. And you have that one moment that you that really stands in your mind what you were thinking right before the impact. And then they, they swerve, you know, and you don't get hit. And so really rings true to you later what you thought about. Like a few years ago, um, they told me I had cancer and I didn't. They said I had cancer of the spine and I looked it up. It's going to be a horrible, painful death, like the worst, horrible, painful death you could have. I found out later it was just a bulge disc. But so therefore that like day when I'm thinking, crap, what did I think about? It wasn't my sons and my grandkids or anything. It was there's going to be another woman riding shotgun in the truck with my husband when he goes to work instead of me. Mm. And that surprised me. And I'm like, I would have never known it was that important. So that made me, though, make sure that he knew, okay, when I found out I didn't have that <laughs> death sentence, 
that um, I'm going to go to work with you because we had talked about it and I went ahead and started working on the road with him because I didn't realize that was, I could just picture another woman in that seat and that made me so mad. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's here or there, but it's just like seeing the contrast. You've been on the other side and what you felt, what was important. But in my five-year-old drowning, all I cared about was playing. Right. Just run around playing as a little ghost kid. I don't have to go eat my vegetables. I don't have to go inside anymore. You know, it was all about me. <laughs> and then, but my 25-year-old was my boys and that's all I cared about. I think you've reemphasized that it's all about the relationships. You know, it really is, no matter how we color it in, but the importance of these relationships to us. And I think that's proper. I think that's good. I think it's good to be focused on our relationships. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you tell that story. I think for me, <clears throat> you know, in terms of another big part of my, my second book, and it's where I'm at now, is dealing with the integration of the experience into my life. Uh, you know, you, you'll, like you can go on the IANS website or read around and it'll talk about, oh yeah, maybe seven to 10 years is needed. Well, mine has been just about five years and I'm pretty certain it's gonna be for the rest of my life. Yeah. I can't imagine in 10 years, okay, that's it. You know, back to normal no. now. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, I think the integration does last a lifetime. And honestly, I kind of hope it does is, as bad as you could say as the airplane crash was and everything that's come after, I'm grateful for it. I really am. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I'm, I'm glad I had my near-death experience. And I hope that I prove worthy of it uh, again, moment by moment for the rest of my life. Do you feel and, you get closer to your experience as you get older? I feel like I always, it's always there for me. And every now and then, like, it's interesting, every now and then looking outside, the light angle, like at a certain time of year when the light angle is changing, for one split second, the angle of light and maybe it's filtering through clouds is in such a way to be very, very close to how I saw it in the in-between. And in that split second, it's almost like I got a punch in the gut and it lasts for three days from a split second of seeing the light as it was on the other side. It's like a three day knockout punch. It's pretty intense and uh, it's disorienting. But again, I'm so glad I have that connection. I'm just fine with it. Yeah, I'm just What's fine. that feel like when you have that three day? Like, it, like I said, it's, it's because remember how the pain in my gut was my guide. I feel again, sort of punched in the gut a little bit disoriented, like a little bit of vertigo. And I, um, it's almost like it's hard to think straight for a few days, probably thinking more clearly, if you know what I mean, more with my intuition and less with my memory to tell me what I know and what to do. Um, but it, and it's right around this time of year, which is fitting in that it was around this time of year I had the NDE. But it's interesting when I've looked at a lot of photographs in the world, uh, it tends to be up in the very northern latitudes, like Scandinavia or northern Canada, where I think I would see that light at that angle more often than not, and also the presence of clouds. So for that reason, I'm, it's, I'm 
drawn to go there and I'm also avoidant of going there because I would, would love to see the Northern long. Lights. Yeah, I would like to see the old Northern Lights. But that's about it. So with your when you were going through your uh you know assimilating your near-death experience and coming to grips with it, what did you find to be some of the interesting challenges with integrating it into your daily life? Letting it come out of my mouth. In terms of wanting to do it and um, being challenged to do how, it? Or? How do you find the words? And mm -hmm. then when you do find the words, the shock of hearing them come out of my mouth. Because this yeah. sounds like crazy talk. And I have a sister that's severely mentally ill. She's been that way since she was a child. And mm -hmm. so us other kids, we always, we can't look crazy, can't talk crazy, you know, going to be like her always afraid, you know, am I going to get that too? And so this was coming out of my mouth and it sounded like a crazy person. And I know crazy people go to mental institutions because that's what happened to her. And I had a very good reputation of being an honest um, person that helped everybody and didn't talk crazy that people could rely on and you come to for help. And now I'm going to talk like this crazy person. And I didn't want to. And not until my social work and counseling investigation career was over, did I really feel, I think I want to start talking about this. I started seeing the significance of it and I stopped denying it. And when that happened, like I can even feel built in my chest now, just when I was getting to that moment of, it's almost like a marriage, you know, you're, you're thinking about getting married, you're kind of flirt with the idea, you're kind of dating it. But when you stand up at that altar and say, I do, you own it. And this yeah. is the rest of your life. And yeah. I had to believe it myself. I had to know it was true myself before I could expect anybody else to believe it. And once I realized, wow, this is true. I am going to tell it and the chips are going to fall where they may. I don't care. I don't care what people say or do, but I'm going to do this. It, it was a huge personal like evolution. But the moment I knew it was real, I saw it on Oprah Winfrey back in 86 mm. or 87. And she was new at the time. And she had these people on that look like weirdos. And I thought, oh my God, what are they talking about? They died and went to heaven. How stupid do they think people are? Oh my God. And I took a step back and something made me stop. And I felt something so strong. It's like, why does that sound familiar? And I'm like, Oh my God, it was real. Cause I didn't forget it. I pushed it away all those months before that. Oh my God, it was real. And it wasn't that they were talking about it. It was just, it brought it to my mind. But when it brought to mind, I, oh, that's stupid. And I'm, Wait a minute. I remembered that what happened in a hospital and I knew that was real. So I told my husband that night and he said, I, I know how it sounds. He said, but I know you, I know you're telling the truth. But then, you know, it was like 1986 or seven then, because it was 86 with my tubal. So it was months later. So, I mean, there was no books. There was no name near-death experience. The thought never happened to anybody. So I tried telling my sister. She looked at me. But the thing is, my sister was a compulsive liar since birth, not the minute ill one, the other one. She was a compulsive liar. She's always telling lies. And here I'm telling something. That I'm the truthful person here, you know. And I yeah. say something, and she's like... I'm like, <laughs> yeah. 
And then I tell a friend and they look at me. And so I didn't tell for years and years after that. Makes sense. I mean, it's, it's already challenging in that there isn't adequate vocabulary to describe that which defines, I mean, it is beyond definition, right? And so we, we try creating analogies. We know they're not perfect, and, but that's all the other person has to hold on to. So I can see why maybe in Eastern texts, why the truth is stated so ambiguously, because it allows people to have a hint of what it is you're saying, but it's up to them to maybe fill in the gaps themselves according to their experience or according to their own imaginations. But to basically, by just trying to put it into practice to understand it, they can now fill those gaps in with their own experience and their new thoughts that come as a result. And maybe that's the best way. I don't know. I don't know, but... Um... Since I started doing these interviews, it's like I've got one foot on the other side all the time now. It's like there's no forgetting it and walking away from it anymore because I'm faced with it every day, every day, every day, every day. And so I love it. It's like I'm staying here, you know. <laughs> People go no, there exactly. and fight and talk about whatever they want. I'm walking away. I'm going to look up the night sky or I'm going to be like you staring at a sunbeam or, you know. I mean, playing with the grandkids. I mean, it's just, I just want to stay in that bliss state because we have a choice. We That's do. where I want to be. So this is a matter of perception. That's a good choice. I, I remember uh, reading a story one time that uh, like this person could meditate and, you know, like having near death or an out-of-body experience as part of their meditation. And one day they went to this other plane that we would describe as hell. And he's standing on the cliff looking out on the plains below and sees all these tiny fires burning. And he, I mean, this person knows I'm in whatever the equivalent of hell there is. And he looks up next to him and standing there is the being who's in charge of running this place. He said, what are all the little fires? And this being said, these are the individual souls in torment. And the man thought for a second and he said, I guess you stay pretty busy. And the being said, what do you mean? He goes, keeping all those fires burning. And this being said, you don't understand. They bring the fires themselves. How many people do we know who aren't happy unless they're miserable about something? And they need to spread the wealth. <laughs> right? We yeah. do. We bring the fires themselves. So, like you say, it is a choice. And, and they're can, pointing their fingers at everybody else, not pointing here. Exactly. So the problem is here. Yeah, they might be doing all this bad stuff. And yeah, all that stuff was bad. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't excuse it. But we have a choice in how we react to it. It's because they see that it's easier to fix the world than it is to fix themselves. Think yeah. about that. And they're butting their head against the wall because the world's too big to fix. Yeah, it really is. And I think I think one of the key steps there in getting over this relative narcissism, if you will, is to not complain about what we don't have, but to ask for what we want. Because if you just complain about what you don't have, nobody may know how to satisfy you. You, know, you could say, I'm lonely. Well, they could throw people at you all day long and they're not the right people, right? But once we stop asking, like, 
where, where is my happiness? And we say, how do I need to be happy? How do I need to be loved? Then we can actually start to get very specific in what we can try to incorporate into our lives to answer those questions. And if people are going to help us, we're making it a lot easier for them by being more specific about what it is we need. And, uh, and then, you know, you'd be surprised. Oh, so many people do want to help just to be helpful. I know a lot of grandparents that sit and complain, my kids don't call, my kids don't come see me. I was like, go see them, call them. Oh no, they're supposed to call me. That's bull crap. <laughs> and, then, and then when they call, they get fussed at for not calling. Well, that doesn't encourage you to call again. <laughs> yeah, I hear, you. I hear you. Just be grateful. Just be grateful.